Hello and welcome to episode 64 of The Five By, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. This week on the show, Catherine discusses the relatively new Blackout Hong Kong, while Mason takes a trip back to the 70s to look at What's My Word. We also have Look Considering Red 7, one of my favorite games to play in public, while I ponder Silver and Gold, a new contender for that designation. But first up, here's Sarah, taking care of any size gathering with the convention favorite, Two Rooms and a Boom. Two Rooms and a Boom was my first social deduction game and is the largest game in terms of player count I have ever played. Designed by Alan Girding and Sean McCoy and published in 2013 by Tuesday Night Games, that's night with a K. Two Rooms and a Boom has a deceptively simple structure. Players are divided into two teams, red and blue, and randomly separated into two rooms. Each player has a secret role, chosen from many options, but there are two roles that must be in every game, the president on the blue team and the bomber on the red team. At the end of the game, if the president and the bomber are in separate rooms, the blue team wins. But if they're in the same room, boom, the red team wins. Each player has a card with their secret role on it, and this is basically the only component in Two Rooms and a Boom. Most of the game is spent sidling up to people, looking at each other's cards or refusing to, then reassessing what you know. You can color share with another player, reveal just the edge of the card showing red or blue, or card share and reveal the full card. Each room elects a leader who gets to send someone to the other room every few minutes. Your goal in two rooms in a boom is to figure out who's the president and who's the bomber, and try to maneuver them into or out of the same room, depending on which team you're on. Well, that's usually your goal. Some roles have their own win conditions, like Romeo and Juliet win if they end the game in the same room with each other and the bomber, while the agoraphobe wins if they stay in one room for the entire game. Many roles have abilities that affect other players when they card share, forcing the player to never tell the truth, to not be able to card share, to not be able to refuse to card share. The more of these roles in the game, the more complex two rooms in a boom becomes and more difficult to suss out who people are based on their actions. And there's the added challenge of keeping track of which powers are in play and what might happen to you if you card share. Compared to most board games, which have you sitting at a table with two or three people for hours, Two Rooms in a Boom is fun and energizing for the novelty alone. You're walking around a large group of people, at least a dozen, and the largest game I've played had over 30, trying to figure out what you know and who you need to share it with, and there's a timer to keep things moving at a lively clip. I will say that while Two Rooms in a Boom is exciting to the point of hectic for the critical roles and the room leaders, if you have a basic role or are stuck in a room so controlled by the other team that they don't need to talk to you, the game can become boring, just standing there waiting for the round to end and hoping they'll send you to the other room. This brings me to my reservations, and in fact, why I decided not to keep Two Rooms in a Boom. First, I don't have much opportunity to play games with such a high player count. There are rules for as few as six players, but I think you should have at least 12 to 14, and the more the better. I almost never play games with that many people, and when I do, there's always someone else there who owns two rooms in a boom. It just isn't necessary for me. But my main issue isn't the player count. It's that, well, I first heard of two rooms in a boom before it came out, and being impatient to try it, I downloaded the print and play, which features card art that is problematic. Like, the doctor is a man in a lab coat, the nurse is a woman in a hot nurse Halloween costume that level of problematic. There aren't many female characters, and what few there are tend to be sexualized. The wife and the mistress, for example. While the male figures tend to depict a job, ambassador or private investigator, and are not eye candy. The worst card is the intern. 
She wins if she ends the game in the same room as the president, and the card depicts a woman in revealing clothes sitting on a desk with a cigar icon below. It's clearly a Monica Lewinsky joke, which, really? I don't have as much to say about race, because people of color are almost totally absent from two rooms in a boom. There's only one character in the print and play that could possibly be a person of color, the dealer, a man in a hoodie holding up a bag of drugs. This is really wrong. I downloaded the print and play and trimmed all the cards, but I never ended up using it because I didn't want to share that racist and sexist card art with my friends. The published version of Two Rooms and a Boom uses more stylized art that is better simply because the human figures are mostly removed. A pill bottle and nurse's cap for the doctor and nurse, for example. But there's still a striking gender imbalance, and most glaringly, the intern card is still there. At least the dealer is less offensive. It's now an illustration of Walter White from Breaking Bad. When the published game arrived, I thought I could just get rid of the print and play and forget it. But every time I looked at the new cards, I'd see the print and play art in my mind. Besides, the thing about a social deduction game, especially a big sprawling one like Two Rooms and a Boom, is that to really get into it and thrive, you have to get inside the heads of the game creators. You have to think like they think. And I don't want to think like people who think that art is okay. Which is why I'm packing up the game this weekend to give it to someone who'll enjoy it more. But the real question is, should you buy Two Rooms in a Boom? I leave that up to you. It didn't work for me, but if you like social deduction and you play games in large to very large groups, Two Rooms in a Boom is a unique experience that may really fill a niche for you. You can toss out the intern card, it won't unbalance the game at all. If you're concerned about racist and sexist imagery, just don't even look at the print and play. That's where most of the problems are. If, on the other hand, you don't care about gender and race and don't know what the fuss is about, you probably hate my reviews, so you should definitely make up your own mind. And that's Two Rooms in a Boom. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not trying to figure out whether you're the president or her daughter, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. In the world of strategy board gaming, the ability to plan ahead and calculate the board state during other players' turns resides on a heavenly pedestal alongside such lofty ideals as determinism and elegance. To elevate a moniker like tactical around a certain sect of modern board gamers is tantamount to treason, blasphemy to worshippers of a pantheon including names like Rosenberg, Knizia, and Feld. Advance the idea that Flux, a game whose ever-shifting landscape is completely antithetical to the fanatical core ideal of strategy, could be fun, and you'll be excommunicated faster than you can backpedal into praising the longevity of El Grande. In such a world, one could be forgiven for assuming there is no gray area between mainstream and hobby board games, between party games and strategy games. It's one of the world's great mysteries that a game like Five Tribes has garnered such a massive fan base in an environment like this. I'm not saying that because I think Five Tribes is a bad game. Quite the opposite, it's one of my all-time favorites. But even with mechanisms which induce more analysis paralysis than the cost-benefit rundown of a corporate takeover, and entirely, inarguably tactical gameplay, Five Tribes is so endearing, players are willing to forgive its trespasses. Red 7, published by Asmati Games in 2015, is another such game. Let's get something out of the way. Red 7 is a filler. I'm not bringing up Five Tribes as a direct comparison, only as an illustration of a certain mindset. I'm genuinely worried many will summarily dismiss Red 7 not just for its tactical nature, but for its status as a filler. And once I reveal that Red 7 incorporates player elimination, a mechanism relegated to ostracized squalor alongside the equally derided roll and move, I might as well just give up on this review altogether. But I'm not going to, because you need to play this game. Like me, you might be surprised to discover that this light, quick, easy-to-learn filler 
was co-designed by Carl Chudik, a designer famous for making games so opaque they'd give a PyGow player an aneurysm. When I tell you Chudik's co-designer is Chris Chejlik, the man credited with the design of Win, Lose, or Banana, you might begin to see how Red 7 is their middle ground. Red 7's premise is simple. At the end of your turn, you have to be winning. Each card consists of a number, a color, and a rule. The rule displayed on the top card of the central discard pile determines the current win condition. For example, blue cards state you must have the most different colored cards in your tableau at the end of your turn. Red cards, on the other hand, state you have to have the highest card in play. Cards are ranked not only by their number but by color, their placement in the Rojibiv color palette marking their rank. On your turn, you can play one card from your hand into your own tableau known as your palette, discard one to the central pile or canvas, or do both in that order and Wow, I need to pause and ask, why does this game have a theme? Anyway, if you can't meet the win condition at the end of your turn, you're out. That's it. Sounds easy, right? But wait, do you abide by the current rule, playing a two to give you the most even-numbered cards? Or do you change the rule to the most of one color so your three blue cards win the turn? Or do you switch the rule to high card and then play your orange seven, beating your opponent's green seven and winning that way? And, more importantly, what do any of these moves leave you to play next turn? The decision space in Red 7 seems small, and clearly tactical, as the central rule and your opponent's palettes go through so much change between turns. But it feels far crunchier than a game with 5-10 to ten minute rounds has any right to. That short playtime is the reason getting eliminated doesn't feel awful. It's also why it feels so awesome to be the last player standing, and so unreasonably terrible when the player before you changes not only the central rule, but the makeup of their own tableau in such a way that it completely nullifies your last three cards. But in both scenarios, everyone laughs. The hallmarks of a phenomenal game are being fun whether you win or lose, and stoking your desire to play just one more round. Add to that an advanced rule set that offers multi-round scoring, and an advanced advanced rule set where odd-numbered cards also have special abilities, and Red 7 suddenly dives headlong into that neutral zone between party and strategy, and makes even the most jaded of Eurogamers see the term tactical in a whole new light. Regardless of classification, Red 7 is a hell of a lot of fun. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at pixelartmeeple, or on my website pixelartmeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! One of the things that you learn when you move to the Oregon coast is how thoroughly disconnected you get from the rest of the world during emergencies. Several times in the 20 years since we moved here, storms have wiped out the electric grid, closed roads, and wreaked havoc with daily routines. That pales in comparison to the amount of devastation we can expect if the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake occurs. Lots of community preparation is going into getting people prepared for it from prepping go bags, destroying food and water on high ground. Blackout Hong Kong, designed by Alexander Pfister with art from Chris Quilliams, envisions such a scenario. A power outage is lingering for many days, the government is failing to meet citizen needs, and can't communicate how long this will continue. In order to prevent unrest and suffering across the city, you and your competitors across the table are leaders on the ground, organizing a group of volunteers and specialists trying to search for badly needed resources and secure regions of the city. You might ask yourself hearing that description, wait! Why are we competing in this endeavor? Isn't this the premise for a co-op game? Yes, Blackout Hong Kong's premise is better suited as a co-op, but we are competing for some vague concept of becoming citizen of the year for doing the most good. While this disconnect is jarring conceptually, it fades as you play, owing to the fact that player interaction is extremely indirect. Blackout is played over many rounds. 
its length based on a finite deck of volunteer cards that get recruited by players as the game goes on. Rows are refilled as people purchase access to these specialists, and one card is washed from each row each round, setting the pace of the game. When the deck runs out, the end game is triggered, meaning the lights should be coming on soon. Each round begins with the starting player rolling the resource die, one red, one blue, and one yellow. These die have different resources on them, some more common than others, and they set the available resources for the round. Red might be medicine in this round and food or tools in the next round. Next, each player starts by adding a card from their hand onto each of their available slots below the game board and on any previously played cards in those slots from prior rounds. You will get to take the action on the cards you played this round. Red, yellow, and blue volunteer cards gather a number of their matching dice resources depending on their strength. Purple cards are specialists who are very helpful, but have requirements in order to take the action. Making careful choices about what you play when is the crux of this game, and it is fun. Once everyone has simultaneously resolved their actions, it is time to fulfill objectives. All over your board you have objectives. Your emergency plan has three which help you raise cash. Your volunteers you are trying to entice to your team have them. There are a couple of challenging objectives on your player board that provide amazing benefits. One even opens a fourth column or action slot below your board. Each objective has a cost and a reward for completing it. Completed volunteer objectives help you lock down chaotic districts on the board, and then they join your team, thus increasing the number and quality of cards you have to choose to play in future rounds. An example of meeting a card's objective is as simple as having the two tools and three gallons of water that someone desperately needs. Next, in turn order, each player has an opportunity to send their volunteers and specialists to scout for goods or points, but this comes at a cost. One team member that you send out will end up in your hospital. You'd better hope it is your pathetic volunteer and not the amazing specialist you spent all your net worth and resources to acquire this round. After scouting, you have an opportunity to recruit new volunteer cards from the card rows, paying less for the rows with fewer cards. These cards go on your board into empty slots, where you filled objectives earlier in the rounds. Often you will have open slots and no money to buy cards, or no open slots and money for days. Maintaining this balance is as crucial as completing these objectives is paramount to both scoring points and building a better hand of volunteers for future success. Some round cleanup follows, leading to the end of the round, which brings us to one of the most interesting conundrums of the game. If you have four or fewer cards in your hand, or possibly six if you have fulfilled a board objective, you may pick up all the cards in one of your action slots as the greatest number of cards in it and put them back in your hand to use again. If you pick up a stack of cards, you may then use the amazing checkmark actions that you have acquired over the game from filling certain objectives. This can be an excruciating decision as card combinations in your action slots can fulfill objectives. Picking up a lucrative stack early often means delaying completing a board objective. Blackout is a complex game. There are a lot of rules, eight phases in each round, and lots of tightly coupled mechanisms. Each phase is an interesting minigame, each tying into the larger effort that you're making. Managing getting something done well in one phase is critical to success with your goal three phases later. These are deliciously difficult decisions, and it is fun and addictive to play. It is cube-pushing at its absolute best. If you have any questions about the Cascadia Subduction Zone Earthquake and would like to know more, you can follow me at Kybrarian on Twitter or CatLibrary on BGG. It should come as no surprise to anyone to hear that I play games in bars or breweries a good amount. 
Nor is it a secret that the Five By, in particular, could be considered a Phil Walker-Harding fan club when viewed from certain angles. So it probably therefore isn't shocking to hear that one of my favourite games learned at 2019's Origins Game Fair was Silver and Gold, an extremely portable small box flip-and-fill game designed by Walker Harding, published in 2019 by NSV. Now let me say up front, this game isn't actually available in the US and therefore was not available at the Origins convention, but it is easily available through Amazon.de and other European suppliers, which meant I had my own copy in my grubby little hands within a week of the show. Silver and Gold has a vague pirate explorer type theme as players are attempting to complete treasure maps for points, and I guess profit probably. Each player starts the game with two map cards in front of them, each made up of 8 to 14 squares that they'll need to fill in, some of those squares containing special symbols. Each turn, the active player flips an expedition card to reveal a Tetris-like shape, which all players will then shade or X out on one of their two maps. If they can't or don't want to draw the full shape, they'll fill in just a single square. They'll then resolve any special symbols they covered, usually earning points, sometimes getting to fill in another square, before declaring any completed maps and choosing replacements from a central row. The round ends when seven of eight cards have been revealed, letting players potentially plan for the future without knowing for sure exactly what shapes they're going to have to draw. And after four rounds of this, players simply add up the points on their scoring card and declare a winner. What makes the game work at all is that every one of the cards is a dry erase card, and the box even includes a very nice set of Faber-Castell pens. So unlike games that rely on a pad of single-use player sheets to provide a roll or flip and write experience, Silver and Gold is able to include this large, varied deck of map cards. Some offer set collection bonuses for maps of another size, while others bring with them the chance of lots of extra coin or palm tree points. Each player also gets a dry erase scorecard where they can track the coins they earn from islands, coin bonuses earned throughout the game, and tally up their final score nice and easily. And even the rounds are tracked on yet another dry erase card, which also gives the full array of possible shapes to be flipped so people can plan, and marks the coin bonuses that I've already mentioned. This is basically a row of trophies of decreasing value. When a player manages to cover enough coin symbols on their maps to complete a row on their scoring card, they get to choose the latest bonus and cross it off of the main round card, preventing anyone else from claiming those points. This gives a decent amount of interaction to the game as you're watching to see who's going to steal a bonus before you can get there. And the other way that that player interaction comes in is the central card display. There's four map cards laid out, and players get to replace any completed maps in turn order. So when drafting those cards, it can be good to pay attention to what everyone else is doing. If you've noticed, for example, that someone has earned a set collection bonus for orange maps, you might want to grab the orange map before they do. Silver and Gold is a charming little game that's easily portable, since it's only cards and dry erase pens, that plays in just 20 minutes and doesn't require a huge amount of table space. In fact, at a recent meetup when tables were noticeably missing, we were able to play a four-player game using a couple of standard convention center chairs as our play surface, and it worked just fine. The spatial puzzle of efficiently filling in the maps fits right in my wheelhouse, and the fact that you're always able to fill in just a single square means you're never completely stuck, 
And really, despite that 20-minute playtime, it's so full of satisfying decisions that you really do feel like you played a proper game rather than just passing the time. We played it numerous times at the convention, and it bore out my suspicions that this is a game that can be enjoyed by a variety of people in a good variety of places. Easily available through the BoardGameGeek marketplace or European stores, silver and gold is well worth importing. But if you'd understandably prefer to try a game before you go and spend money on it, the game should cross the pond soon enough, and I hope you will get a chance to play silver or gold at least a few times in the near future. After all, it is a new Phil Walker Harding gem. For the 5 by, this has been Ruth. When I'm not searching for treasure amidst the islands, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about my word. A little disambiguation first. Uh, today we are discussing the 1972 deductive word game, My Word, reissued in 2010 by what is now Eagle Griffin as What's My Word. Designed by former games magazine backgammon editor Jolie Quinton Cancel, My Word has become one of our most played word games this year and is possibly the best word game I've ever played. Now don't confuse this with the perfectly fine but not even remotely as good Reiner Knizia card game My Word from 2001. We love word games, but they're not always the best for two players. Uh, we play a lot of Taboo, a lot of Password, but at two, they're really more just cooperative activities. We can't play Scrabble anymore because I'm not a challenge for making the play against. Scrabble, like Chess or Bridge, has such a massively installed user base and following that it's really transcended its original parameters and become a subculture and lifestyle unto itself. Usually when that happens with the game, it ceases to be appealing for me, mostly because I can't, and just won't, devote enough time and energy toward it to get good. I'm bad at Boggle because the letters being upside down and sideways make me go cross-eyed and give me a headache. I like Scattergories and Outburst too, but again, these are really more party games, playable at two, but not really ideal. I found my word while searching for older two-player games I wasn't familiar with. Sometimes I'll just pick a category or a filter set on Board Game Geek, sort by release date, and start from the end. Hobby gamers have a kind of tunnel vision about which games matter, which is a consequence of consumerism, capitalism, elitism, and a thirst for this constantly refreshed relevance, but that's an entirely other discussion to have some other time in some other place. So the unsustainable, breakneck release cycle of games has just totally exhausted and disinterested me. I'm always on the lookout now for new-to-me old games that still hold up. And friends, my word holds up. Another pencil game, My Word was initially published by Gambit of Games as two packs of score sheets, which is fairly progressive, or at least minimalist, for 1972. There are no special dice, no timers, no unnecessary scoreboard. Just two people, two pencils, and two score pads. And in part, that's why My Word is still genius almost 50 years later. It's a rare and beautiful thing to me when a game isn't just two-player, but only two-player. Publishers love to try and force multiplayer games to work at two and to adapt two-player games to work for more, and a lot of times the results are just garbage and extremists. Oh sure, I get it, you want to make money so you appeal to the widest possible audience. Except that most things engineered to appeal to the widest possible audience are watery slop. My word is unapologetically a two-player word deduction game. The overly simplistic description is word battleship, but it's more than that. Played over two rounds, you are asked to think of a word for each round. A six-letter word in the first and seven-letter word in the second. You write it all at the top of your sheet in a set of crossword-style boxes, and then take turns guessing shorter words in the columns underneath. If the word your opponent guesses contains letters in common with your secret word, they score points and give valuable information. I normally hate explaining rules, as you know, but to understand why my word is great, I'm going to have to a little bit, so my apologies in advance. So, because the secret word and the slots for guest words are laid out on grids, both the letters and their placement matter. Correct letters get you 250 points, but correct letters in the correct position get you 1,000 points. 
By process of elimination, you're trying to figure out what letters are and aren't in your opponent's secret word. The only feedback you get from them is the score of the word you've guessed. So if their secret word is forage, F-O-R-A-G-E, and you guessed high, H-I-G-H, your score would be 250 for that turn. The only thing you've learned is that one of the letters in the word you've guessed is present in the secret word, but not which letter or where it is. Playing my word is a little like picking a lock or running an elaborate con. You're testing, trying, tweaking, and twisting every turn to try to get the information you need before the time runs out. Now, there's no sand timer and no sense of dread or urgency in my word, but there are a limited number of turns before you have to render your final guess. Guess correctly and you'll get a 3,000-point bonus, but you don't have to guess correctly to win. Let's say you'd figured out that the last three letters of the word forage were A-G-E, but you still hadn't had time to get the other letters. You might still score fairly well if you could come up with the words containing the letters you do know in the correct places. And it's always better if you can get the secret word, but the whole game doesn't hinge on it. You can buy a vintage copy off eBay for around $10 plus shipping. You can buy a copy of the Eagle Griffin What's My Word version off eBay for about $20, or the travel edition directly from EGG's website for about $15. There's also a great printable sheet over on BGG that I've laminated. It's full letter size, which I've found to be more enjoyable and readable. None of us are getting any younger. You're going to want ultra-fine dry erase markers for sure, though. The boxes aren't that big. We've played our copy around 30 times so far this year, and I don't see it wearing out anytime soon. So who should play my word? People who like deduction, but aren't really keen on social deduction. People who live in two-player households. People who love word games. And people who have a decent inkjet printer or just print things at the office before anyone else comes in. I give my word 3,000 out of 3,000 points for correctly guessing the word iguana. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram, where I post about thrift stores, Star Trek, and weird bad TV shows you'll probably never watch, at Discount Compost. You've been listening to The Five By, the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at The 5 By, thanks for listening. The 5 By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.